Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime narrative, documentary, or series, and I talk to the people who made them, diving deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. This week, we'll be discussing the documentary Nail Bomber, Manhunt, with the film's executive producer, Colin Barr. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch Nail Bomber and then listen on. Nail Bomber, Manhunt, tells the story of a far-right extremist who, in 1999, detonated three bombs across London with the hope of instigating a race war. Through exclusive interviews with investigators, undercover informants, local leaders, and survivors, the film recounts how the city was terrorized for 13 days and ultimately how the community and police captured and brought the bomber to justice. I spent 10 years undercover in the far right. I've got a different perspective. There was talk about starting a race war. All someone had to do was light a match. Whilst the politicians and the police were dithering, the bomber is preparing the next bomb. It brought the pressure to a different level. Nobody was thinking about the fact that this could go wider to the gay community. I was passing by and then... He's murdered an unborn child. I was never going to let him get away with it. He'd never been a serial bomber. People were afraid. They're trying to drive us apart! It was down to us. We're coming together! In a way you've never seen us before! This was somebody who hated difference. What gives me hope is that there are more good people than bad people. I knew we needed to stop him. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Hi, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been doing a little bit of reading up on you, and I would love our listeners to hear a little bit more about your history as a filmmaker and what led you to this particular project. Well, I've I've spent years and years working between documentaries and drama. So I often take things from drama and put them into documentary and take things from documentary and put them into drama. Um, and just find new ways of telling factual stories and as many new ways as I possibly can. And I've made a few documentaries um, that have been in the world of far-right terrorism over the years. And this was a story which, if you'd lived in London in this period, you would, you would, and you were of a certain age, you would remember. But there's a whole generation of younger people who know nothing about it, at least in the UK, know nothing about it. And we had been talking about it as a, as a development team. And I remember being really amazed that it was 20 years ago that this had happened. And I also remember thinking, my goodness, if anything, it seems more relevant today even than it was then, certainly knowing what we know now about the rise of the far right and everything. And so we went back in and looked at the story again. And it felt like there was a whole story there that had never really been told, that if you went just behind the headlines... There was a story about people doing things that were extraordinarily heroic, that weren't willing to let themselves be beaten by this bombing campaign. And it felt like a story that would have a really important message for today. That's really interesting because that's all I could think about was, you know, we 
are talking about the rise of far-right extremism as if it's new. And this is very clearly not the first time in 1999 that, you know, people in London had faced this, but it feels exactly like it feels today, except that I do feel just like a tremendous amount of hope from a lot of your subjects, even today, talking about it. How important was it to you to have those messages of, you know, if we just stand up, like we can overcome this? It was really, really important that this film, that the message of the film was about what ordinary people can do when they refuse to be beaten by hate. And I think, if anything, the message of the film is that hate will never win as long as there are enough good people who won't let it win. And we in London had lived through bombing campaigns in the past, mostly actually related to the IRA and the the situation in Northern Ireland. And this was the very first far-right terror attack in the UK. So it really was the first of what then went on to become a bigger wave of, of attacks. And we've seen subsequently, at least in the UK, we've seen a British MP murdered by a, a far-right activist. We've seen all sorts of violent groups rising here in Europe. Um, in some respects, Europe is a bigger problem than the UK has. There have been a huge rise in, in sort of far-right activism there. Um, we've seen attacks like Anders Breivik in Norway, um, Brenton Tarrant in Christchurch. People will remember that attack. And it just feels like recently we've seen a, an increase in the level of violence, not necessarily the number of attacks themselves, but the level of violence has increased markedly. And David Copeland, who was the nail bomber in London, was one of the first of that new wave. What do you recall about the attacks when they happened? Were you living in London at the time? I was. I was living... So this was back in 1999. Um, I'm originally from Scotland. and um, I can tell. Yeah, can you tell? Okay. <laughs> A little bit. I moved down to London from Glasgow, and I'd only been here about a year. I remember the attacks. They were almost... It was in the days before the internet was as big as it is now, and it was also in the days before rolling news, 24-hour rolling news was a really big thing. But I remember that at the time, it felt like after the second bomb, everybody was just following the news. You were just waiting to see where and when this person or this group were going to strike next. And so you could feel the whole city being seized by this sense of fear, insecurity. And it never really happened in London like that before. You'd had one-off attacks, but never something that felt like a serial bomber. And I remember the third attack happened in an area of London uh, known as Soho, which is where there's a really strong gay scene in Soho. And I was going out that night with friends of mine who are gay, and we were going to go to Soho. And we heard news of the bomb having gone off in the centre of Soho just before we set off to go out for a drink together. And we heard that three people had been killed, and it just felt so close to home at that point. And I think everybody just felt extremely vulnerable. It was a massive relief as well when Copeland was finally arrested. It was almost like there was a huge exhalation in the city. 
Was there really, I know that, you know, there were letters that indicated that there was a, a larger sort of movement and group behind it. Was there really this fear that this was a groundswell, like coming from an organized a group? Absolutely, yeah. There was, I mean, there was a lot of ignorance around. So to be perfectly honest, the police, for example, just didn't have the level of knowledge or awareness that they have today about those far-right groups. So at that time, they were really struggling to get information to try and lead the investigation. They had virtually no clues. They didn't have any intelligence coming from those groups. So they were pretty ignorant about it. There were lots of people saying that these were racist attacks, but it felt like we knew nothing. And because we knew nothing, we feared the worst. And nobody thought that it would be just one person wreaking all of this havoc. Everybody assumed it would have to be part of a much bigger, more organized thing. I'm curious about how you were able to source this film. At the very beginning, we hear from some people from Brixton who were sort of vendors on the street the day of the first bombing, especially these two guys, Mark and Lee, who were the bootleg CD vendors. That was an incredible series of interviews. How did you track down these people and get them to want to talk to you about this? Well, those, those guys are absolutely classic Londoners. There could be a whole movie just about them. I, I really, <laughs> I was just like, I would love for you just to follow them around and have them tell stories. <laughs> they are just fantastic together. And they were selling what we would, we would call them dodgy CDs over here. They were selling <laughs> dodgy CDs on the street, like fake pirate CDs on the street. They also happened to be the two guys that initially found the bag in which the bomb was and they didn't know what on earth to do with it and in the end they were caught up in the blast and I think if, if you've seen the film you'll see that there's some amazing archive of the two of them immediately after the blast and they, they were from a part of London called Brixton um, which is where they were selling their dodgy DVDs and CDs and, um, and we spent a lot of time down in Brixton we put posters up. We were on all sorts of chat rooms. We just got the word out that we were making this film and asked people to get in touch with us. And we were very, very lucky that they got in touch with us. And it was a brilliant moment for me when we were able to match them up with the news archive of the bomb itself and see the two of them 20 years earlier actually experiencing the thing that they were telling us about in the interview. It was incredible, especially when he talks about ruining his jeans and you see the jeans that he's talking about in your interview. It's, it's really an amazing moment. Of course, the film opens uh, with a source named Arthur, who went undercover for a long time for an outlet called Searchlight into some far right territory. Can you just tell the audience a little bit about Searchlight? Because that's something we're not really familiar with over here in the States. Searchlight is it's an anti-fascist organization. So basically what they do is they campaign against fascism in all sorts of different ways. But one of the things that they do that is, is a little unusual is that they also infiltrate far-right groups to try and do the thing that the police often really struggle to do. And so Searchlight, for 25 years, they've been doing that work. They've actually changed their name recently. So they're now known as Hope Not Hate. But they're continuing to do exactly the same job. And they're filling a gap, basically, that the police and the security services can't fill. And they would often get volunteers coming to them, volunteering to help in all sorts of ways. 
And Arthur was one of those volunteers. He was in his early 20s. He met with a, one of the guys who ran Searchlight, a guy called Nick Lowell's. And he said that what he wanted to do was to go undercover into a far-right organization called the British National Party. And he spent more than 10 years working undercover in that party, going to their events, drinking with them, getting involved in violence, but not getting involved in violence himself, although he was subjected to violence, ironically subjected to violence by anti-fascists who thought he was a far-right activist. And he spent more than 10 years as a mole inside that organization and met David Copeland before David Copeland went on to run his bombing campaign. And he became an incredibly important figure in the whole story. But his story was not one that has been told properly until, until now. And this is really his first full account of what he did. I'm really curious to what end someone who is not working in law enforcement would do this. Was it to publish stories for, I know they had a magazine. Uh, was it to publish stories? Was it to get tips to law enforcement? Like, why would Arthur agree to do this for so long? Do you know good old-fashioned belief? Like, nothing more or less than he really cared about trying to stop the far right and fascism rising, however he could do it. He just decided to take action. He decided to do something about it, not just talk about it, but actually do something about it. He never asked for anything. He was never paid for it. He never got any recognition until now. He never got any recognition for what he'd done. And there was a reward that was on offer for the capture of Copeland. And despite the fact that his intelligence led to Copeland being caught, he never asked for the reward. So I, genuinely, it came from a conviction, and that was it. And he still wants to remain anonymous today? He has to remain anonymous today. He cannot be identified because there are so many people out there who still think that Arthur was a member of those organizations. And if they found out that in actual fact he was working undercover, the reprisals could be really severe. His life is very much in danger. And so we had to shoot the interview in a way that completely obscured his identity. And he obviously has a life that he's living now. And only recently did his family find out that that period in his life where they thought he'd turned into a Nazi, that he was actually working undercover. So it's taken him, it was about a year and a half ago that he finally told them. So he's still going through a transition of people knowing what it was he did but he cannot be named and he cannot be identified. That's unbelievable. I, I can't imagine if somebody that I loved, you know, made that transition and I thought they were in a group like that. And, and then, you know, I can imagine the choices that were made by his family and friends because they believed he was actually a member of this group. It's, it's really incredible to think about. And, you know, one of the things that's so interesting in your conversation with him is how, there's sort of a slippery slope, right, where you go, you go into a group like this and in order to play the role, you really do have to listen. And that listening, it doesn't necessarily turn you, but it does sort of give you an understanding of some of where these feelings are come from. How much of a slippery slope do you think Arthur found himself on? I mean, obviously he didn't turn into a Nazi, but it's, it was difficult, right? I think it was a pretty steep, slippery slope that he was on. I think that he, when you have the same message repeated to you again and again and again, 
there's a point at which, regardless of what your own beliefs are, you can start to think that either your own beliefs are wrong or that they just start to be challenged in some way by the constant repeating of the opposite message to the extent that you can start to, you can almost start to believe that what you thought was wrong and that what they're saying is right. Some people call that brainwashing. Um, Some people call it radicalization. It's basically the same thing. It's the point at which your brain starts to be reprogrammed by the constant repeat of the same message again and again and again. And I think there were points at which Arthur found himself starting to query whether his ideology was right and whether actually the fascist ideology might be right. And he found himself questioning things, like because so many of the people around him are Holocaust deniers, for example, and one of the things that they're constantly talking about is how the Holocaust didn't happen. They try and deny it where they can. Um, Hitler is obviously a big figure in that world. And Arthur started to find himself questioning some of those things himself, even though he knew that those things were true. He he just couldn't help but feel that he was being programmed. And, you know, I think that scared him. And I think it was an illustration of how, how that kind of radicalization works. It's amazing to think that somebody who came into that world as a real anti-fascist campaigner, so he was right out of the opposite end of that, could find himself starting to move over into the other camp. So imagine what it would be doing to somebody who starts somewhere more in the middle. They would get radicalized so much more quickly. So it had a really profound effect on him. He still talks about it today. When, when you talk to him, you, you still hear a level of disquiet about the fact that he could have been taken so far down that route. Do you think he's okay? I mean, I know that sounds like a, a very broad question, but I just found myself wondering, you know, without knowing anything about his life, which we can't, I'm just curious, you've met him. Do you think he's okay? I think he's okay. Good. I think he has, you know, some residual guilt about not having stopped Copeland before the final attack. But I think he's what he's got is he's got a healthy sense of perspective. He talks about himself as a, he doesn't say that, we haven't used this in the film, but he describes himself as a bargain basement 007. So he's a very, he's very humble. Um, he doesn't see himself as a, as a hero. And I think he's, I think he's sort of at peace with what he did. I, by the way, think he is very much a hero. And I think he's the very definition of a hero, particularly because he's never actually asked for anything in return. But he seems pretty grounded. One of the things that you do a great job demonstrating in the film with archival footage is the rift that existed between the police and the communities that they were serving, particularly in Brixton, where the the scene of the first attack. You have this wonderful piece of tape. I believe it's news footage where a reporter is saying to a bunch of young people, you know, what do you say that the police say that maybe some of you should become police officers? And they just laugh. They just think it's like the funniest idea they've ever heard. Um, Is this rift what was to blame for the cops being so slow to realize that this first attack was racially motivated? Yeah, it continues to be. I mean, the the Metropolitan Police in London has had, a, as you may or may not know, a very, very checkered past in terms of its relationship with the black community. Um, There was a really strong feeling that that community felt wildly over-policed and significantly under-protected by the Met. 
And so there was sort of suspicion on both sides in lots of ways. And after that first bomb, there was definitely a feeling in the community that there was a reluctance in the police to accept that it was a, a racist attack because they didn't have any evidence at all about who had actually committed the attack. But there was definitely a feeling that this was another example of how the police were slower to react to something that affected that community than they would have been had it potentially been a more affluent white community. So it went right to the heart of a schism that exists between the police and the black community in um, in London. Um, the Met and, and the black community in London have, for you know, a couple of decades, there's been a real tension there. And not long before this bomb, there was a murder of a young black man in London called Stephen Lawrence. And the Stephen Lawrence case was a really significant moment in race relations between the police and the black community because he was murdered by a bunch of racist white thugs who stabbed him to death. And it led to an inquiry. And this, the conclusion of the inquiry was that the Metropolitan Police in London was institutionally racist. And it's it's been working hard at trying to get rid of that reputation. But if you imagine that these attacks happened not long after all of that, and it felt like for many people, this was another example of that institutional racism, a reluctance to police the black community as it did the white. Of course, the police denied that. Um, they would say it was as much about you know a lack of awareness or ignorance or suspicion on both sides. Um, but they've definitely struggled with that reputation over the years. It's always been interesting to me. I mean, despite the institutional racism that we know exists within law enforcement, within government, within basically every institution, there is this also this naivete around sort of far right extremism and, you know, racist violence. It seems like there's always the impulse to deny that that's what it is. I've always been curious about what's behind it. I wonder if it's because, you know, for many decades, we just pretended like real racism was an outlier, that most people didn't feel that way. Like in the United States, we had the Klan that we could point to, like the small group. Is it that? Is it that we were so in denial of the existence of this for so long? I, I just, it's so curious to me why it takes so long for people to acknowledge, yes, this was a racist attack. Yeah, I think, I think there's a, it does feel a, a little different now compared mm. to even 20 years ago. I mean, I'm not saying for a second that, that everything's okay, but it feels like there's a level of understanding now about how far right terrorism works that means that the police and the intelligence services are, are quicker to recognize it and call it what it is. Like absolutely, without equivocation, call it what it is. There was definitely, certainly 20 years ago, when they did say it was a far-right terror attack, they were always quite quick to call it a lone wolf terror attack. In other words, it's somebody working by themselves. It's somebody who's gone off and done this because they are a lone madman in a way that when you would talk about Islamist terrorism, it's always more organized. It's a terrorist cell. It's a group. And I think that use of the phrase lone wolf is a real problem when it comes to far-right terrorism because it sort of tries to disconnect that person from the society that made them that way. And it sort of tries to let everybody off the hook in a way that is just really problematic. And so David Copeland was dismissed as a lone wolf. David Copeland was only a lone wolf in as much as he did these things, 
but he was a product of those organisations that he was part of. He was a product of a community of people who felt marginalised, underrepresented, left behind, who felt that their only recourse was violence. Hate was the only way that they could answer back. He was a product of all of those things. He wasn't alone. Yeah, I think that's a really outstanding point. And I even think about with Islamic terrorism, even when there's, you know, one person, they call it a cell of one. They don't call it a lone wolf. It's it's just an interesting dichotomy there. I'm curious about the naivete of the police themselves also in investigating terrorism. You have your senior investigating officer admitting that at the time she had no terrorism investigation experience. Was this a department-wide problem? I would think it wouldn't be considering that, you know, there had been these IRA attacks for so long. That What that reflects actually is when the first bomb happened in Brixton, nobody really knew what it meant. So they didn't approach it like they would have approached an IRA bomb. They didn't treat it like a terrorist incident. They treated it like a bomb attack on its own terms. And so the senior detective on it was a woman called Maureen Boyle. And Maureen had no experience of this. She was quite an inexperienced senior investigating officer. And so she was just thrown in at the deep end and was basically learning that job as she did that job. It did change once they started to realise what was actually at stake and what was actually going on. But initially, in that first week, they had no clue what they had on their hands. And it was after the second bomb that they realised that this was something more concerted. But even then, they had so little understanding of how these far-right groups operated. They had so little understanding of who was in them that they didn't really have any intelligence to go on. That was where Arthur became so important because Arthur was that person on the inside and without him, they would never have had any of that information. So there was a, a combination of things, a naivety and a complete ignorance of how those groups worked. So did Arthur and the police have contact during this investigation? No, Arthur would feed his information to Nick, who was the person who ran yeah. search, and then Nick would feed that information to the police. So interesting. Nick was the conduit between he effectively was Arthur's handler and Arthur would never have a direct line of communication to the cops because who knows what the cops would do with that and who knows what the cops would do if they knew who he was. So the only person Arthur trusted was Nick. I was really interested to hear more about the character uh, in the film. Of course, not a character, a real person, but, you know, for the sake of narrative, that's how how they sort of come across to viewers. Uh, Mike Franklin, a black guy who lives in Brixton, ends up working with the police in this investigation. Do you know more about why he decided to just dig in and help rather than just, you know, like a lot of people in the community saying, like, they're not helping us? You know, he, he crossed the line and decided to help them. Do you know why he did that? I can only spec. I haven't spoken to Mike about exactly why he did that, but my sense from Mike is that once he got beyond this feeling of hostility towards the police and a feeling that the police weren't doing their job the way he thought they should do it, I think he actually felt like he had to do something about that, that he had to put his money where his mouth was. And so he effectively acted as a bridge between the police and the black community in Brixton. I, I started working with, with the police. I mean, I did joint press conferences. So when they produced this picture of an individual who may be the bomber, there was argument with me about whether it should be published because it's grainy and it's an inconclusive picture. My view was, no, if that was a member of somebody's family, they'd know it. Put it out now. 
out today. No, we can't do that. <coughs> While you're prevaricating, the bomber is preparing the next bomb. It's urgent. Put it out now. Don't waste time. What are you going to say to me if a bomb goes off while we're here having this conversation? And I'm, I'm telling people that you could have stopped it. Put the fucking picture out. But nobody did. Mike saw his job as being like a critical friend, like the kind of voice that a largely white police force had to hear from if they were going to make the right decisions. Uh, so he took responsibility in that respect, which again, you know, it feels like he's another example of an ordinary person not simply letting these things happen, but actually trying to go out there and make a difference. Hmm. Speaking of making a difference, we have to talk about Bernard, or Bernie, who, after Copeland's arrest, posed as an admiring young woman in order to gain Copeland's trust because Copeland had, of course, claimed he had a mental health issue that was the underlying reason for these bombings. So who was Bernard working for? And can you just tell me more about him? Bernard um, used to move in those far-right circles. He was... He was quite heavily involved in some violent gangs in this period uh, and had attended a lot of the same meetings that both David Copeland and Arthur had attended. And he'd spent years in that world. And Bernard, I think, had got to the stage in his life where he had real misgivings about the things he'd done in the past. He was trying to get away from that world, trying to build a new life for himself. And one of the things that he did, and his motivation for this is really interesting. It could be partly atonement. It could be, it could be partly retribution. But he, he decided that one of the things he would do is where you had people who had killed children or women, he would make it his business to try and help secure a conviction for those people. It tended to be people who had committed the worst crimes. So either you know, serial killers, serial bombers, serial rapists. And where, in this case, um, where you had someone like Copeland who was claiming that he was mad, not bad, so diminished responsibility, therefore shouldn't be convicted of murder, he decided that he's going to start writing to David in prison, pretending to be a young woman called Patsy, who would strike up this conversation with Copeland, get his guard down, effectively kindle a sort of pen pal slash romantic series of, of letters where Copeland would share more and more and more information with him. And then ultimately, in one of the letters, he revealed that there was nothing wrong with him. He'd fooled the doctors and he thought this was going to work in his favour. And that letter where Copeland admitted that he was trying to fool the doctors with this diminished responsibility claim was used in the trial. And it played a significant part in him not being able to claim that he suffered from a mental illness. And those who were in court at the time at which it was revealed that that letter had come from Bernard rather than a woman called Patsy said that it was the only moment that Copeland showed any emotion at all in the trial. Mm. And, of course, Bernard feels like this was one way that he was in some way making amends for the things he'd done in the past. 
It's interesting to me. Now you've named four non-law enforcement citizens, Arthur, Nick, Mike, and now Bernard, without whom, you know, things may not have turned out the way that they did. It's astonishing to me. I think especially because here in the United States, there's such a reticence for police and prosecutors to work with anybody who isn't police or a prosecutor. Uh, Do you think that they have acknowledged how important people like Bernard and Arthur and Nick and Mike were to their investigation and ultimately for Copeland's conviction? I think there's the same reluctance here for the police Mm -hmm. ever to acknowledge citizen involvement in these sorts of cases. And it's, there's, there's always a couple of reasons for that, isn't it? They're always obviously nervous that people are going to put themselves at risk or get in the way. or And so they never they never sort of want to acknowledge it in a way that might be seen to encourage other people. I think privately, the police have acknowledged to Nick and to Arthur how, how much they valued all of that. Um, I think that in this case, there was something about the fact that this felt like an attack on a city that meant that more people were willing to step up and do something about it. And so you had a slightly different reaction to it. These people didn't want to be victims. They wanted to feel that they could try and make a difference. And they did step in where the police were struggling. I found your interview with Gary Reed, who was one of the survivors and a victim of the Soho bombing, so moving. And I looked across to where the optics and, and, and things in the bottle should have been. And there was nothing, just darkness, wisps of smoke. And nobody, I I couldn't see anybody, couldn't hear anything. And I can remember turning to to look to see what was going on. And then the next memory is of being, looking up at a, a young woman. And I could see her mouth opening and closing, screaming, I think. I think it was filmed beautifully. I think, you know, his telling his own, you know, moment by moment story of what happened that the night the bomb was detonated was just so affecting. And then to see the footage of him, you know, back then, can you just tell me about what it was like to speak with him? As you say, Rebecca, he's a really, he's such a memorable character. He's completely without self-pity. You know, he's someone who was horribly injured in that attack and suffered hugely but he, he doesn't forgive Copeland, but he sees the waste of Copeland's life as much as the waste of all the other lives that Copeland inflicted injury and death upon. He's sort of extraordinarily understanding of all of that. Um, he's an artist. He talks vividly about the moments leading up to the bomb going off, and then particularly the moments after it where he talks about being taken into hospital. He talks about the hallucinations that he had in the hospital bed. And he he remembers a very, very specific thing, which um, he remembers having hallucinations involving rats, rats and more rats and rats in the walls and rats landing in planes and very strange hallucinations. And he came round two days later to find out that a lot of the, the victims of, the, um, of that bomb had had terrible infections because one of the things that Copeland had done was allow his pet rat to run all over the nails that he was using in the bombs. And so the, the nails were covered in just rat material, toxic rat material. 
And he's always connected those two things, these hallucinations that he had and the fact that Copeland had used rats to make these bombs even more deadly. But he tells that story very matter-of-factly. You know, he tells it factually. And he's a remarkable, remarkable man. I know you've been working on this film for a really long time. And in the time you've been working on it, you know, there has been this continuing conversation about far-right extremism, uh, Antifa, especially here in the United States, it's a word that has been given a meaning that, you know, a lot of people think makes no sense. That's, you know, it's, it's very different kind of uh, activities than history here in the U.S. versus in the U.K. I'm curious to know how you've been feeling knowing you're making this film that's so centered around hope and people doing the right thing and standing up as you've watched these current events unfold in the last couple of years. It's hard. It's so I think we all feel the same way. Well, I don't know about you. I, I feel, I find it really depressing sometimes and it feels very bleak and you wonder what is going to, to turn it around and where the difference is going to be made. But quite quickly, I find that within it, I can see a positive message for humanity in there somewhere that in the end, these groups doesn't really matter whether it's far right, whether it's far far left, whether it's Islamist, whether it's if it's religious, whatever. The extremes at any end, any 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 group that wants to try and achieve a goal through violence, they're never going to achieve the goal. There will always be too many, I think, good people that won't allow them to win. The tragedy is that people will be killed and injured along the way, but they will never ultimately win and it took me a while in this film to feel like by the end of it you could really feel that actually there's a positive message here about what real people can do in the face of terror like this it doesn't always present itself like that it often presents itself as fear and horror and distress and trauma and all the things that are also true but you don't have to look too far before you start to see the best in people as well. And you find that with all of these attacks, that in the end, if you just get to meet the people who've been on the receiving end of it, spend time with them, listen to what they've got to say, in no way does this diminish the tragedy that they may have experienced, but you do also see the best of us. I do really appreciate how victim-centric and justice-centric your film is. I think that is the right approach for a story like this. And I'm curious if you gave any consideration or maybe even tried to reach out to Copeland. Did you think about including him in the film? No. We, I mean, we, talk, we talked about whether we could make an approach to Copeland. In the end, I mean, pretty quickly we felt like to give him a chance to be heard would be to give him a platform that he didn't deserve. We thought really hard about what presence Copeland should have in the film as well. So you'll see that in the film, we don't see an image of Copeland until really late on in the film and and then only briefly and then not again. Um, we have a police interview layer through it where we have the actual, we've used the actual transcript of his police interview um, and then voiced it, um, but been really careful about what we allow him to say and not say, because our big fear in all of this is that somehow we give Copeland what he wanted, which was fame and notoriety. He wanted to start a race war. He failed to start a race war. He failed in his aims. The worst thing that we could do is somehow give him one of those aims 
in a film that's really about the people that he attacked. Well, it's a very difficult subject when you've managed to make a film, Nail Bomber Manhunt, that's, you know, moving. Uh, I learned a lot, and frankly, I feel a lot of hope, which surprises me, and, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that that was one of the reasons you made it. Thank you so much for talking to me about your film, Colin. It was a real pleasure. It was a pleasure to meet you, Rebecca. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to executive producer Colin Barr. For more of my takes on true crime, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to this show and stay tuned for upcoming episodes. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hans Dale Sue, and our producer is Shayna Deloria. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.